0: Hi everyone and welcome to Pathfinder presented by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. I'm your host Mo Islam and today we're joined by Steve Massey, the co-founder and CEO of Pruitt Ridge, a company developing software to help engineers design and build complex engineering systems. The company's software verb helps engineers capture and manage requirements within the tools where they originate and across complex datasets. If the term systems engineering sounds foreign to you, then you should definitely keep listening because it's a critical issue that needs better solutions in the space industry. More on that in just a second, but first, a word from our sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Epsilon 3, software for complex engineering, testing, and operational procedures. Epsilon 3's web-based procedure platform enables technicians, operators, engineers, and management to instantly access information around current status of operations, police history, and historical reference of procedural content. Epsilon 3's platform is better suited for coordinating space development workflows than word processing software, Microsoft Excel spreadsheets, and other applications that are not tailored for the industry. For more information, check out Epsilon3.io. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. Um, I actually uh, I've I decided to change up the background today, and I have these very nice cherry Blossoms behind me It'll hopefully add a peaceful tone to our conversation feeling it already. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I see you're in some type of soundproof-like box.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. This was the uh, probably the most attractive background in the
1: co-working space today.
0: So That's great. So where, where, where is uh, Pruitt Ridge located?
1: Uh, so we're headquartered in downtown Los Angeles. Um, you know, I've definitely spent most of my time in LA and around that area. Uh, but we've got a couple of offices as well. We've got one out in Albuquerque mm-hmm. uh, and then Scattered folks throughout uh, the rest of the U.S., with uh,
0: including New York, Austin,
1: and Minnesota. So, oh, New York! I, you know, we were- I,
0: I don't, I don't hear that very often. In fact, because I, I, I live in New York, and it's a very, it's very frustrating because anytime I try to get together with space people, I realize there are none. <laughs>
1: Oh, if you throw a party,
0: we'll you'll make sure a few, a few of our guys show up. So. Yeah, we're, we've thought about the uh, industry happy hours, um, which work very well in Los Angeles, but they don't work very well in New York. But uh, may, right. maybe one day in the future, I, I can only hope. It's funny when uh, so a friend of mine, Max, um, who you might know, when he started uh, Launcher, I remember it yeah. was a New York-based launch company, and I was like, I don't know how that's going to, I don't know how that works, but like that's awesome, and I'm very happy to see a space company doing its thing in New York City, but, you know, he ended up realizing that New York is not where you build a space company and moved to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, definitely uh, not enough space there for that. No, so. not enough space. I barely have any space to live, so there there you go. Um, anyway, tell us about tell us a little bit about Kurt Ridge. Uh, what are you guys building, um, and uh, you know, how does it all work? Yeah,
1: so, you know, we started Kurt Ridge about three and a half years ago at this point. Um, kind of saw the... An interesting problem uh, that I like to describe as how do you get the uh, software on the chip on the board in the box on the rocket? And mm-hmm. how do you do that uh, the most effective way possible? And uh, born out of some experiences of being a in mission management at SpaceX early on, uh, where we really had to manage this workflow of a successful space launch, successful space mission, and it all came from the, the, the top level of writing down what do you care about? Why do you care about this? Effectively, requirements management, and then making sure uh, those top-level concepts get appropriately handed off and shared with the rest of the the uh, the rest of the team. Historically, it's a pretty manual process. You know, you've got a couple of different platforms in play to do that, a lot of different uh, very boutique and niche, niche pieces of software that uh, don't necessarily always talk to each other, and a lot of very uh, manual interaction with folks. Um, so we build a a requirements management platform uh, for deep tech startups, broadly space, aerospace, but also applicable to medical devices, automotive, uh, nuclear, and so on, Uh, that under the hood is this very robust um, graph database with an event-driven execution pipeline to help share and disseminate information as those top-level requirements, and even the more software asks uh, involved in the product design, um, we can propagate those to the rest of the system. So... In short, we still have a requirements management platform, but it's uh, so much more spreading into
0: this digital thread ecosystem and beyond. Got it. Okay. So, for the uh, non-systems engineer like myself, okay. um, if I'm if I'm thinking about this correctly, and please, I'm going to just give it a shot, and you tell me how many times I've got uh, how how wrong I am. So, uh, you have to build a let's just say a satellite bus, right? To keep it easy. Um, You have, you know, software engineers, you have mechanical engineers, you have a variety of different stakeholders that are all kind of coming together to build this bus, um, all working on different things at the same time. Um, And am I thinking about this correctly in that this is effectively uh, a software um, solution to be to make sure that all of those stakeholders are coordinated and um, have real time kind of updates in terms of what they're all working on sort of at once? Is that is that sort of? A, a good way to think about it. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's sort of the the right way
1: to think about that, because um, you know, the reason why we have systems engineers is that they ex- they're like the product managers at project level, the project owners uh, in a more traditional software company, but they have to go cross platform. But no, no one person can be an expert in literally everything. The same way as your mechanical engineer, you really want them focusing on the stresses and strains of the vehicle and the system. You don't, you know, they may have some background in fluid dynamics and plumbing, but they don't necessarily need to be the expert in that. And Someone else should probably also be the expert on that as well. Right. That system engineer at the top level makes sure that um, you know, those two pieces can come together in the end and also impact the larger system in general.
0: Right. So, so, uh, it's so clearly this can be applied to a lot more than just aerospace, right? Uh, but you're, you're a space guy but by background. So what, what was it in the space industry specifically and in sort of your, your, um, experiences? Cause, you know, you worked at SpaceX, right? One would argue that they definitely have their, their, their stuff together. Um, and then you did work at a couple other startups, right? So like, to, to, uh, maybe tell me a little bit about like what was sort of the pain point in your experience that said this solution needs to exist It needs to exist now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to note that, I mean, we, we chose to start this company after seeing not only, you know, what were some pain points and things that worked well at SpaceX, but also at uh, following companies like Slingshot Aerospace in particular. Uh, we, we did a lot of really interesting work uh, earlier on there, a lot of work with what they call the edge platform. So a lot of like, uh, real-time analytics, space situational awareness put on, on drones and assets and everything. And we were doing a lot of work with major prime contractors that also had their own approaches for systems engineering. And it was almost the contrast between those two experiences that uh, the contrast and like common thread between them that made it feel like this was the right time to start this company. Um, but going back to the SpaceX experience, I mean, one of the things that we, we talk about a lot uh, just in, our, in our, our platform is we turned six months into six hours. Uh, the, what that came from was, particularly earlier on when I was there, when we were engaging with our customers, we budget probably about six months to do mission analysis work, just to do that, that CDR-level analysis to say, hey, everything's all right. We're going to get you uh, space safely and okay. Um, most of that time, I mean, anyone who is a systems engineer or has worked in this space, Just they start nodding their head as I start to talk through this. It starts out with capturing the top-level requirements of, okay, where specifically, what orbit are you going to? Uh, send me your, your loads analysis files. Send me your, um, you know, your, your, your vibration test results. Let's load it into our different platforms, a couple of different systems, whether it was a, a share drive or a SharePoint system or um, a requirements management system that was very standalone and only used in a group. And then I would have to go and knock on the doors of twelve other disciplines, have them log into the platform, certify that I've entered the information correctly, that the customer understood the the asks okay and everyone's on the same page. And then we'd separately schedule time with each of the different disciplines to go and, you know, make sure that they could get the trajectory correct, get the loads analysis correct, mm-hmm. uh, get the thermal analysis correct, and so on. These all different disciplines, all different engineers that no one person had the expertise to be an expert in all of those, right. certainly not myself. And right you know, a lot of the work was, you know, logging in and making sure that not only did I enter it correctly, they were able to type it into their platform correctly, and so on and so forth. Later when I went to Slingshot, working with, with uh, you know, the major crimes that we were engaging with, I would see similar workflows in a cross-disciplinary space that, you know, the, the, the processes were kind of similar in, in, in that aspect, but like some interesting Different approaches that I can get into later on, and so you know, uh, when, at one point in I guess summer twenty nineteen, me and my co founder went on a camping trip and just started talking. Well, hey, I, I know we've been talking about maybe doing something, uh, you know, in in this space. Um, you know, maybe now's the time to do this because we're seeing this this common thread here. So it it really comes down to like this data provenance synchronization thing, like that that process of turning the crank, changing the values, and just updating what the next layer should be. If you could basically line up the inputs and outputs, and then also maintain this like central, bare minimum, central approval source to make sure that we all agree that, you know, this piece of truth is actually true. Mm -hmm. That's effectively the MVP to, to go to market with. And then... Of being something of a differentiator because there are definitely digital thread tools starting to come up uh, more and more certainly um, more and more digital thread tools. this wasn't really a, a space to we were operating in three or four years ago when we started, and then the requirements platforms are very standalone and siloed, and they really expect you to go find a different integration platform to go to move with things so
0: so um, h- h- how big of a problem um, So so if I'm a, well, actually, let me take it. Let me, let me think, let me ask this question slightly um, differently. So um, I'm the founder of a, of a space company, right? Um, Building some type of complex hardware product. And, uh, you know, we meet and I don't know, we we meet at at a bar and you're telling me about your company. Like, what am I, what's sort of the typical thing that you see someone like myself doing incorrectly in terms of building out these processes? and what do you typically say to that founder in terms of like, hey, you should be doing things this way and you need this software tool and you shouldn't be using Excel spreadsheets, by the way, in case you've been doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's more about when you have more than a couple of folks on your team and then right. people start having to work off of, off, off of different playbooks. I think actually... Um, you know, there is a time and a place for Excel. I mean, the first integration we built was was into Excel, actually. Um, you know, we want to, like, make sure that we can reference data and just not lose that information. Uh, but probably one of the, the, the first things that we want to really engage with folks is at that early design and concept iteration stage, you know, you'll probably have a couple of, of spreadsheets describing what are your top of parameters. Then you start to have a couple of other folks in your team maybe running analyses, uh, in like Python or MATLAB, in order mm-hmm. to, to prove out initial concepts, and then you might actually start to be building building against something inside of SolidWorks. You could probably keep it together with two or three folks, just you know send information back and forth. But you know any much more than that, um, you want to make sure that you you understand where the information is being used, and so you don't go too f- far down the path of oh hey this I ran this analysis and it told me a whole vehicle needs to be two meters longer. Sorry, guys. And then that right. totally blows everything else out of proportion. So,
0: so and how much is your, how much is this system, the, or software, I should say, uh, able to work with sort of obviously like myself as a human being, right. I'm, I'm looking, watching, updating versus like things that should happen automatically, right. Based on certain changes that I'm doing on a system or a, a piece of software that I'm working on. Does that make sense? So it's like, so it's, it's sort of like uh, you know the 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 uh, everything sort of updating dynamically based on whatever kind of let machinery that I'm using for lack of a better word. You can you can tell right. very easily that I'm not an engineer. By the way, just by the way I'm trying to ask this no, question. No, no, I, I
1: see, no, 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 it's, it's good. <laughs> I I understand what you're saying. I think part of that is that you don't, you you are kind of correct in the sense you don't always want to automatically. Um, update things without that individual contributor of engineering owner's consent, oftentimes you just want to flag that their source information is that date because they're working in these CAD files, they're working in these Excel files. Um, and you want to know that, you know, if you have your, uh, one of the demos we run through is, you know, we, we have a spreadsheet that I built from Space Mission Analysis Design, it's a home transfer um, you want to know that your target orbit that you're transferring to is out of date because someone else in your platform it a different um, a different parameter. So what we initially do is we just at the very least one maintain an understanding that this file somewhere in your enterprise is consuming the information, which already is incredibly helpful. Like just being able to log into the platform and I can see you know where are these requirements being used and like dig deep into who last updated that file and is referencing that. So it ends up being a curation process just, just, just by virtue of using the platform. Mm-hmm. But then the users inside of those files can be informed that, hey, this is out of date, uh, and I should probably click rerun and then approve that the out- output is correct uh, and before I push it back up. And that's broadly where most of the, the integrations are right now and where most of the workflows are. We do have a few specific workflows um, that... If you have an analysis, you're happy with it, and you've written it uh, in your Jupyter notebook or in Python MATLAB, uh, we can pull that in. And as long as you've formatted it correctly in Python, which is not that hard, it's just adding another wrapper around it, um, we can then load it into the platform so that users uh, who consume information both upstream and downstream of that you know they'll be informed that if they update this value it'll actually automatically be run so we have a couple of customers who use that to um, you know do those automated checks uh, as they go as, as they start to
0: evolve through their system so um, I, I have I saw a very interesting fun question that you pose on your website or on your blog so I'm gonna ask right I'm gonna ask right now because I think it's 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 a uh, I think it serves for good discussion so uh, and I it gets to the heart of like another question that I'll ask very very quickly after it but um is systems engineering quote just an exercise in paperwork right so you have you have this <laughs> this fun question and uh i am curious like because you you brought you, you said earlier like you you, you you measure you discussed a um change in in magnitude uh, or, or magnitude of change in time you said six months versus i think six days is what you said. Right. In terms of like, um, so actually, actually just taking a step back, um, system engineering, is it just an exercise in paperwork? Why don't we start (laughs) there?
1: No, no. I think, um, some organizations, um, you know, it it may end up, there might be a paperwork burden involved. Um, so one of the things we want to get to is, is take all of these systems engineers who, um, you know, Often have the most the most amount of insight and changes how a change might ripple through an entire system, and just empower them to actually uh, make good choices. So they're not spending all their time on paperwork. Or you can have a, an engineer who is um, they, they may be an expert in one piece of the system. They can then support that role as a system engineer in general. Uh, so as far as like an exercise in paperwork, I mean, if you're we're we're building these these vehicles, these systems that have to live in these highly regulated environments, right? You think of a launch vehicle, you need the FAA, you need range safety. Uh, you need so many people involved to certify that you're going to build the actually correct thing and understand uh, its failure modes to some degree. Same thing with an aircraft, same thing with um, you know, like, like a pacemaker or any other medical device. I mean, these things are super impactful that rightfully so often have regulations that were literally written in blood. So you need to actually generate this information so you can prove to... Uh, your wider team and even society at large that you have built the correct thing and you've built the thing that you have made. Uh, that said, there's an upper limit to how much paperwork can an individual produce to do a lot of this, this effort. And that ends up becoming a cost center for a company. And you end up spending a ton of time um, generating a lot of uh, things more on the compliance side, uh, right. as opposed to thinking about how can I make this platform better, how can I make this product better, how can I make this, this drone fly, fly fly faster, how can I make this airplane better, and so on. So as far as a, a exercise in paperwork, I mean, there's there's this classical approach of this waterfall development cycle, uh, where you you start at the top, say what you're gonna build, step to the next thing, step to the next thing, and then, okay, well, we've, we've locked all the, the um, uh, yeah, 've locked all of the hard design we've locked all the analysis right, the next thing the next thing, and you do so much work before actually bending metal or getting to the pad mm-hmm. that it ends up you end up spending way more money building that system um, when if you were able to get to the test stand sooner, um, you may find out that your initial assumptions were totally wrong and so, but how do you do that? How do you prove to the interested parties outside of your organization even that you've built enough of the right thing that you can safely test it on the test stand and then get their bio and approval, uh, to, to get to the next step. So is it an exercise in paperwork? I mean, I, it's, it really shouldn't be. Um, it really is supposed to be where everything comes together. And I think we're excited to help support that.
0: Right. Have you, have you done any, um, have you guys done any work around the me- so the measurement and that loss for a company not having this type of software in place, like whether it be dollars or lost hours? You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but have you looked at it from any quantitative perspective that like, hey, buyer estimates, like this is how much is lost in value?
1: Um, yeah, there's some really, really good studies actually that we've, um, I've been able to reference and, and look at where... Oh man, uh, Ramcorp did this in... Uh, right around 2009, 2010, and looked at how much of a total budget of an aircraft or weapon system was spent on the systems engineering uh, bucket of things. Uh, And they're redoing the study right now, actually. you will probably run into the researchers um, if you go to any AAA conferences like SciTech. That, uh, I'm I'm blanking on the statistic, I want to say that it's anywhere from 20 to 30% of the total budget uh, is spent on that. So if you apply that to the cost of the F-35, you, you apply that to just generically hypersonics R&D, um, your reference with super, super large figures that you could have used for sustainment of the vehicle, uh, you know, better research and development than just building a, a strong system. So, uh, but that's not to say that you don't, you shouldn't have systems engineering. Uh, that's to say that this is a point to like make that entire areas way more efficient, right? Getting people to try things faster and move faster. And I, like, I, I bring up the, the DOD example in particular because, I mean, this has become a focus area almost independently in, in the various services over the last couple of years in terms of digital transformation and digital engineering. Um, the, the Air Force is sort of their, their own arm for this. Uh, the Army has as well, the Navy has as well. And they're all super interested in how can we build this like digital first enterprise and being able to actually support, um, you, you know, showing uh, uh, the, the end results before it's actually physically made to the end stakeholders, whether it's a, a, a general who's ordered a new system or the contracting officer to make sure that um, the the uh, the, the Company's building the correct thing,
0: right? So uh, this kind of gets me to um, thinking about NASA, right? So like, how does NASA think about systems engineering in general? If we go back to the Apollo program, uh, was it a million plus people worked on that program? And I think they went from like from like clean sheet to like launch in like six years, I want to say something like that. So like, have you have you um, or, or, or are you familiar with how NASA thinks about? this across their, all their different subdivisions and engineering teams and um, just the broader organization?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it depends on the NASA organization. Um, you know, I think there's some really exciting, um, uh, uh, very tightly scoped approaches out of JPL in particular that have been pretty exciting to see. Uh, they have a number of efforts out there, including um, OpenMDE and Open Caesar. Um, but but NASA has been a almost a pioneer in this world of of, of model based systems engineering, and this is a, a fun one to talk about because it it is an approach to engineering that is um, I think I think it I don't want to say it wildly deviates but it's it's pretty significantly different than what we'll commonly see in a lot of the you know West Coast aerospace startup world where you know you want to get to bending metal as soon as possible and having this super tight cycle of like okay build something fail fast build something fail fast and i i would i would there's an argument that we make that the last 20 years the first 20 years of model-based systems engineering has been it's I feel like it's made some organization a little uh, gun-shy to like, actually go out and, and try something and build something. You end up effectively overmodeling before you get to the point of actually uh, developing something. That's not to say that, that there isn't a place for model-based systems engineering, but it's, it, it ends up, uh, the model ends up being the product itself, that, as opposed to the actual completion of uh, the hardware. And this is something that even like the government acknowledges, this is the people that that run organizations will acknowledge that like, well, you know, we we, we got this far in the testing, we built a new aircraft wing, and then we built a model because the contract asked for it. And that's not the point of the modeling system. That's just a fluke of the regulatory environment you're in. And that goes back to that paperwork exercise where we've shifted the paperwork from being actual forms you fill out to being um, digital models that you might make at PDR uh, after you've done a number of uh, significant work campaign, and then you go do a bunch of work and then you have to go and update the model and you need a person to go and update the model. And that's not really like the way that's supposed to be. And so this goes back to where we're thinking about our system is that how can you, how can you take all this information, right? I mean, like I, you know, they were taking the top level requirements input uh, as in the human Layer of like, why do I care about this airplane? We're mapping engineering values that either the user has input or we've helped them extract from that, and mapping it into the actual engineering tools that are doing the work. How can we perform a transform with that knowledge into that model so that you don't necessarily have to spend so much time maintaining that model? I think that's where we're, you know, we're, we're looking at where going over the next couple of couple of uh, quarters, um, and so. Going back to your your earlier question of how does NASA approach this, um, I, I think it's it's they do a really good job building things under some very difficult constraints in an environment where they are not allowed to fail, and you know they they end up um, preventing that uh, that failure uh, by su- investing significantly on the modeling side. So. I'd love to be in a state where we can get them the benefit of failing much faster. Um, then I'd also like to get the companies on our platform that are having those rapid iteration cycles that are more in that private sector the benefit of the insight the modeling provides. So how do you how do you pull the best from both of those? those
0: yeah, of those yeah. No, I I think that's interesting. And, and you said something kind of profound that I've actually. Haven't I've never thought about it this way, but it actually puts things into perspective. NASA is not allowed to fail. I mean, that's that's a, that's really fair, right? NASA NASA has a budget that they receive from Congress every year, and it, I like. There's certainly no room for failure, right, in terms of expectation. So it is interesting how you build sort of around that. It's very different than a startup where you know it's that's certainly not the case, right? And I know culturally a lot of this is all changing, but. Um, so, so, uh, so, so Steve, just going back to Pruitt, um, uh, so, so tell me a little bit more about Verve. Like what, what is the product that you, the core product that you offer today to, to companies? And, um, you mentioned, hey, you should think about something like this once you have a few people, right? On, 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 on the team, at least on the engineering side. So like, when is the right time for companies to be thinking about um, your software solution, and then what does that look like in the future? Like, what could maybe even current customers expect in, in the future from
1: from you guys? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we've seen the most effective uptake when you're somewhere between five and ten uh, users, just at the early stage. Um, you know, I think earlier than that, I mean, we'd love to engage with you and work with you uh, as well, just to make good choices early on. Um, but I, I think that's probably where you see the benefit from a lot of the, the, the collaboration. Um, because we like to, to start from that, that requirements layer, like that top level of, you know, why do I care about what I'm building and you can start to input that information and then you can start to access it and you can see where things were approved, why you want to act, what, you know, when was this last updated? And so that you can continue to, you know, do those early iterations on those spreadsheets Mm -hmm. on those Python scripts or on SolidWorks. And then you can also see when things are, um, when things change and evolve. Um, I think what we're looking at going forward, um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited by this like understood automation in terms of, uh, auto-executing, um, the analyses and just parts of systems that propagate through the rest of the platform. Um, you know, we can... We're getting to be in the state where we can start to push information out as well, uh, as opposed to just pulling it in as the next user comes in, and being able to build these, execu- these like full execution chains between multiple tools in order to get them from one end to another,
0: um, I'm really really
1: excited about. Uh,
0: All right, well, uh, I've, I want to hear a little bit more about your cu- actual customer traction, but we're going to need to take a very quick break. Uh, and when we're back, uh, we can dig we can dig into that. Sound good? Cool. <laughs> That sounds good. All right, Steve, stay with us. By utilizing Epsilon-3 software platforms, engineers can create builds, track builds through AIT, revise and trace test procedures, and more. Not only will engineers save time and frustration looking for information in multiple places, but it will speed up your AIT processes. Unlike using simple documents or generic project management tools, Epsilon-3 provides synchronization and standardization that streamlines and refines processes and procedures. Check out their website, epsilon 3io for more information. Steve, welcome back. So uh, when we last left off, we were just talking uh, a, a bit about the um, current um, product set. Uh, t- tell us uh, what does customer traction look like so far? Who are you uh, to the extent that you can share? their folks, um, or maybe the types of companies or organizations that you're working with?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I, and we've seen a pretty interesting split um, you know, uh, you know, of commercial sales versus government engagement. Um, and we're, of course, beginning to learn all the different types of contract vehicles beyond the SIVR uh, in order to support that engagement. Um, you know, but I think as far as on the, on the commercial side, um, you know, it's a significant focus, mostly in, in space, mostly because that's kind of my background. I see us expanding a little further into automotive and medical before the end of the year. We're still pushing on that, um, but I, you know, I'm pretty optimistic about some things in like the pipeline to get there. Um, but I think you know initially space was helpful because that's just the background of mine and my uh, my co-founders and our our wider network um, on the commercial side on the government side um, you know we've been really engaged with uh, a couple different parts of the Air Force um, you know I mentioned we have a strategic we, we have a, an office out in Albuquerque uh, that is deliberate to make sure that we can support uh, a few efforts out of Kirtland Air Force Base um, there's a few efforts that are coming up with a few um, other bases that are spinning up right now, um, and then we've been able to, um, you know, sell a number of, of seats through a few different contracting vehicles into a, um,
0: a, a few of the programs in the Air Force as well. What is your ideal? What is your what is the ideal commercial customer look like for you? Meaning, like um, this is sort of like the sweet spot of where you know we want to play.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean. I mean Everyone we talk to is is building something really interesting, right? I mean, like that, I think is is fascinating. Um, but it, it's, I like to say, any organization where you have two or more engineers that are definitely not software in any way. Um, we've been leaning more towards, um, you know, folks who can write custom analyses. Uh, it's been easier to load into the platform, but as we expand into Additional uh, uh, tools and integrations, you know, that's definitely less and less. Um, you know, I think it's whether it's it's ten or a team of ten or a team of a uh, team of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we we'd, we prefer to get in. I think CDR or earlier. I see okay? because okay. once you're beyond that, um, I mean, we'd love to support you know whatever efforts they have, especially if you're in need of being able to like. You don't have great practices. When you do good practices, you want to really accelerate things. But we're not going to come in on, like, you know, James' space telescope operations, right? That is wildly out of scope, right? right. So uh, you want to be able to come in when there's still
0: um, an ability to accelerate development, not near the
1: end of the development
0: cycle. Right. And just for the uh, just for the uninitiated CDR, critical design review, maybe talk uh, two seconds. What is that? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, that's uh, one of the big milestones in your development process. It's after the preliminary design review. Um, you know, PDR is like a, a rough cut of like everyone coming together saying, "Yeah, I'm pretty sure this will work." I'm like 80 percent there. CDR, you really want to be have um, you know all of your ducks in a row, whether you're mechanical, electrical, software, right. uh, so that you can go and actually make the big investment into uh, the next level of engineering. Right. Exactly.
0: Uh, how big is the pr- team today? We are uh,
1: eight full-time, and then a couple of part-time US, um, yes. So I think up to, about, up to about 15 total. So that also includes, uh, we have a relationship with University of New Mexico. Uh, and so that's part of that engagement out in, in Albuquerque. And we've got uh, two researchers through that engagement as well.
0: So Steve, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about what uh, solutions or types of solutions that are out there um, in market for, for uh, potential companies uh, that don't look your, like yours or, 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 said different, maybe said differently, like what sort of, what sort of the differentiator about your uh, software solution versus what what else is out there right now in market?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think I, like the f- one thing I really noticed is that there are, are platforms that are really working to be a requirements tool and their entire business is, is around selling seats to access the requirements you've loaded into their system. And they they built a number of workflows in a very specific, almost waterfall way in approving and maintaining uh, that that text database effectively. And then you have another set of tools that are really only just started uh, to be built out over the last uh, three to four years in particular uh, in the digital thread space that start to plug start to plug in uh, different engineering tools uh, together to try and get data in and out of them. Um, you know, you see some of that inside of the major tool vendors, and you also see some cross-vendor uh, uh, tools as well that are more, more agnostic. Um, but you don't really have anyone that offers an integrated solution between those two. And I think that's one of the big differentiators that we, we set out just from the beginning, um, is that I don't really fully understand the intent of what I'm building if I can't understand you know, w- you know, what I've written down and how it maps into the rest of the system. And so if you take a layer uh, step back and think about, well, am I, what am I doing? here? Am I, ca- am I capturing requirements uh, for regulatory purposes? Or am I trying to truly understand if I've built the correct thing? You need to have a little bit of both. And so we've ended up, building an underlying system that can support um, not only uh, capturing effectively that, en- that engineering decision tree, but also um, understand where that information is being captured and consumed uh, elsewhere inside of the ecosystem. And so we end up selling this as a requirements tool. But as, as uh, users get deeper and deeper in platforms and start using it, uh, there's there's usually this light bulb moment of like, oh, wow, no, this is what this is doing. Oh, this is really cool. And it's a, um, I don't know, it, it, it's really cool to see that. It's just, it's hard to talk about that part without building the narrative of like,
0: digital thread versus requirements and seeing it as an axis, and building it from there. So um, also, we, we didn't, we, we actually didn't define this in the very beginning, but like digital thread, how would you, how would you explain that to a, to a, to a layman, yeah.
1: So, digital thread is the
0: thread that is
1: woven uh, between the um, different engineering assets produced along the way, right? So, you have that requirement that you've written down. You've built a, you know, a a, a a an airplane wing of some kind, or at least the outer skin of that. You also have a set of analyses that verify. The airflow over that wing, and then you have uh, some amount of um, you know wind tunnel testing you may have done as well in the results of that. And so there is a common thread between all of those. You want to understand where those files all live. You want to know how that information was produced, and more importantly, you wanna be able, you want, you wanna be able to know if one thing's changed, how did that impact the downstream items? So it's really just drawing a line. You know, early, early versions of our pitch deck, we had Charlie Dave, from it's always sending Philadelphia in that, that mailroom sketch uh, of him, like, going all over the place, like, early on, just trying to describe what the problem is. And it, it really is trying to connect all the disparate pieces inside of your ecosystem.
0: So, so you mentioned uh, early days of the pitch deck. Uh, so the, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you guys worked with the Techstars Accelerator. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, back
1: in 2020, uh, it was their first virtual yeah, what, accelerator, too
0: it was their first, sorry, what was It that? was,
1: uh, so we did Techstars Space. It was, I don't think it was their first virtual one program-wide. I think there was like a Techstars Anywhere, uh, but typically, you know, it was always in person before that.
0: So it was their first virtual, okay, well, two questions then. Uh, one, uh, why did, uh, you know, how did you guys decide on Techstars? And then two, what was it like to go through the Accelerator or an Accelerator program virtually?
1: Yeah, well... You no, know, it, it, it was virtual because of COVID, which was widely regarded as a bad time. Uh, but you know, I think we uh, made a uh, um, they did a really good job of you know leveraging what they they could from that um, in, in the sense that we probably we, we saw probably a greater engagement from the the wider mentor community because people would just call in, right? You weren't necessarily as constrained; it was more normal to be. Uh, a remote in a way that just prior to March 2020 was very strange, right? And like, I think it's, um, so it probably was able to bring in, and you'll have to ask Matt about this in particular. I don't want to like, say anything bad about the previous ones. Uh, I came out as Slingshot Aerospace, which, which went through Techstars LA in I think 2017. And they had a great time. It was great engaging with folks. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. Um, you know, th- there's, we definitely uh, uh, it tried a bunch of different ways to like replicate the in-person experience and then also tried
0: to, to leverage the opportunity to like bring as many different people as possible.
1: I forgot the first question you asked me. <laughs>
0: no, I asked uh, why, why Techstars specifically?
1: Oh yeah, I liked the small class size. I think that really appealed. Um, you know, I think that they, they were very focused as well because it was the Techstars Space Accelerator in 2020. Um, you know, I think we kind of saw it as like a, we we wanted to, me and my co-founder Zeke wanted to see this as a, um, like an accelerated MBA program, like specifically like how to run the business and try to like, you know, we have this concept we've been working on. We have some early prototypes. Uh, we have some interesting traction early on. Um, how do we build from there and like learn how to
0: grow as company leaders, I think it did. I think it did a good job of that. Uh, Just uh, yeah, yeah. No, I've heard. I've I've heard great things about Matt and his uh, Matt team. So they're they're doing definitely doing a great job out there. Uh, I want to switch. I want to switch gears for a second um, and talk about Hyperloop. So you spent some time on a project that we don't typically hear a lot about, which is very cool. How did you end up working? With, well, actually, let's start off. What is Hyperloop? Oh, man. How did you end up working oh, on Hyperloop?
1: Yeah, that, uh, that That was an interesting time. So uh, this was, what, 2016? Um, this is actually probably where I got super close to my co-founder, Zeke. Uh, we, so we were the launch group, right? And there mm-hmm. was... At, at SpaceX,
0: sp- obviously. just Right, at there. SpaceX.
1: And this was the SpaceX Hyperloop pod competition. This isn't one of the, the companies that that later... You know, built around the hyperloop concept, Um, but this, like, my involvement of that came about. I I was in, so I was in launch. The amo Six incident had just occurred, and so we needed to stand down to investigate uh, why that uh, vehicle incident happened. And um, you know, I wanted to. I I took that as an opportunity to like try and get involved with something else in the company uh, while I you know, maintain you know, my customers on effectively on pause because we weren't really launching at the time. Um, so I got pulled into that. Um, it was run by uh, a gentleman by the name of, of um, uh, uh, so Steve Davis and then Doug Bernauer was running a lot of that as well. He's now CEO of Radiant Nuclear. Um, and we basically built these... Cause it's a kilometer long uh uh, uh tube behind uh, up and down Jack jackar boulevard uh that we could pump down to uh, near vacuum uh and then we built these effectively called them the this pusher system that was a um uh, a couple of it's an interesting collection of parts from uh from both Tesla and SpaceX in order to build this pusher pod uh to Uh, then have different engineering teams from around the globe compete in the platform. It was a very interesting testbed to, like, yeah. I think it was, like, the world's first or second second largest vacuum chamber uh, just by volume. Uh, It was an interesting, stressful environment for these parts to, like, run up and down that platform. And we built this, like... I don't know, this electric sled that had to run in a vacuum uh, under a very tight time Um I think it was really interesting seeing the engineering practices on that as well, because it was, um, you know, we had uh, a pretty large amount of resources to, you know, comparatively so to to, to run with that. And it was a very uh, agile and much more agile and dynamic, um, pretty tighter feedback loop of the engineering design process than we would have with a customer spacecraft and a launch vehicle that has flight heritage. So complete other end of the pendulum. So, uh, you know, just I think having those two experiences uh, balanced in my head, both of being able to meeting to execute on something with uh, this like, you know, incredible amount of like access to resources to build this really eccentric uh a vehicle versus the very formal approach that you needed to take for the rest of the industry. Was well, what was the goal of that project? Oh man. I mean I the so it grew into eventually grew into the boring company. And you know the, the thesis was you could accelerate transportation. Um I mean you, you could get higher performing trains if you were to remove all of the oxygen from the track it's running on. Um, so that that's an interesting thesis. Um, I think yeah. what the boring companies has converged on is, um, you know, focusing on the tunneling aspect of that and then working with communities to to roll out their loop product on the other end of that. Um, but I think that the Hyperloop project itself was, I mean, it was an interesting thought exercise in like, how can you improve upon um, effectively electric rail? I don't know. I think about this, this a lot. Like I, I in my... Uh, uh I think about free time um you know I, I I do a lot of work um advocating in the community for uh more micromobility uh, bike lanes and so on and I think about public transit infrastructure uh and you know how can you improve mobility in a city like Los Angeles right and um m- Hyperloop is interesting because it's taking some aspects that definitely do work um, as part of like a, a rail system, right? I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, a passenger, there's a convergence on the number of passengers you have on a rail system that like individual cars cannot meet in any way. Um, and then they just send them, they can make them go as fast as possible. So.
0: No, it's, it's interesting. I actually, I've met a lot of space sectors. I haven't met anyone who worked on uh, like, you know, the the beginnings of you know the the, the or, or early days of like hyperloop related work I think it's super interesting so um, I, I I have another question which I think you're probably uh, one of the few people that I think could uh, could have a, a pretty good definitive answer on this point um, so I want to talk about automation in the aerospace industry and I, I want to uh, talk about it a, a bit in the context of artificial intelligence I was looking at a chart um earlier today which really stuck out to me which was um it was uh, venture capital deal volume uh, within generative AI uh, over the last like three four years and it was it was it was quarterly numbers and basically you see a very flat chart for a while <laughs> basically every quarterly deal volume was under call it 500 million on average and then you get to q1 2023 and you go from what looks like on average about half a billion dollars a quarter in deal volume to $12 billion. So like, kind of like what, the crypto, what, what crypto looked like and the crypto VC dollars looked like in, in 2020. And 2020. I, I'm certainly not drawing any conclusions based on that analogy. But what I, I, I am kind of curious is like where I don't hear a lot about how AI is impacting the industry. I actually don't hear a lot about it in the space industry, and maybe I'm in the uh, maybe I'm in the, the wrong circles, or whatever it may be. But I don't hear about folks talking about that nearly as much, or the impact of it. Yet, you know, you look at these numbers, and you're seeing crazy amounts of dollars going into the, going going into these of startups. Um, we don't need to talk about AI specifically. I just bring it up more as just like a, a framing mechanism. But really, I'm I'm actually more interested in automation. Like, you know, you sit in a unique ecosystem where your company works on a variety of different businesses, on a variety of different engineering problems. Um, and where do you see and, and, you know, when you're building, I actually like to tell people all the time that like AI, when you're building things with hands, Right, and you're you are you're, you're using tools to like you know weld and and, and screw and 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 effectively like put you know, build machinery right or build parts whatever maybe that's something that AI won't be able to automate not 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 anytime soon at least right but what are the things that you're noticing more and more automation than within aerospace or or where do you see sort of like automation aerospace going just in general
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a super good question. I mean, I think one of the reasons why you don't necessarily hear about it so much is that uh, if if you can, once you can explain something above the level of AI, it stops being AI, it starts being like you know, computer vision, right? Or it starts being what other subset of, of AI it is. And so we have a lot of really fascinating companies doing imaging analysis in order to like do things like, like the hydrostats doing awesome things, doing crop yield prediction it, uh, like that you could broadly consider as AI, but it's definitely like computer vision application with like set bounds. And it's very, um, you know, um, very intelligent how they're going about that. Um, but as far as like the generative space, I and mean, I think what you're, you're getting at is how can I, when can I go into the Tony Stark's basement, and wave my hands around and talk to an assistant to kind of make my next Iron Man suit. And I, I think, I mean, I'd love to get there. I think that, you know, there, there are some steps we have to take to get there first though. Um, you know, I think one of the things you've seen deal flow go up with AI recently is just the impressiveness and accessibility of these large language models, starting with with ChatGPT. Um, but like under the hood, I mean, DaVinci was which, which is the model that OpenAI released, but had been already been on the platform for, for months at that point. It's just when they released it in a way that you can converse with it and ask it hey, can you make me a cocktail and have it give out a you know, comedically wrong answer, but then eventually get to the right answer over time over the following six months to a year. Um, yeah, I think it got a lot of people really excited about the potential of that. Um, but as far as, as in the aerospace industry, I mean, there's it's harder because the consequences of being wrong are so much greater right? And so you almost need, you, you, sh- you should be having AI elements, right? I mean, a lot of people use this company called Entopology that does generative design for 3D modeling. And it finds the ideal load paths to build out the right system, uh, like mechanically. So that should be in a part of your workflow. But until you can get to like, something that's super deterministic, it should be considered a part of your more squishy human level of the workflow, right? I mean, you have a human that has written an analysis, right? That even needs to assess the data that comes out of that analysis. Um, I think you'll start to see those quote unquote AI components coming in as, as like basically black boxes um, in some of those elements as well. Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting problem, right? Like it's, like Even like circuit design, right? I mean, like ever since I was uh, an undergrad getting an electrical engineering degree, there was like the auto router in, in building your printed circuit board, and it never worked correctly. It just kind of guessed it, like, put this resistor here, this chip here, and draw a bunch of lines. And it was always like, in 2010, it was terrible. Like, I think nowadays, it's getting a little better, um, but I don't know. I, I think it, you'll, you'll, you'll see AI, you'll see automation, but it's, it, it, it's going to bubble up. Through all the different things, I don't think you'll necessarily see a top level. Uh, I can generate you a rocket company because the total set of software tools needed to do that is hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: So. Well, I got a funny. I have a funny story for you. So uh, a couple of days ago, I was I was messing with Bard, which is Google's like version of ChatGPT, yeah. and I asked it. I was like, "What do you know about Pruitt Ridge?" like the companies, but I have to, I have to, I have to clarify. What is it? You know about the space company, Ridge. and it said, it actually got a lot of it, right? Uh, except it said Pruitt Ridge was founded in 2020 by Rob Meyerson, the former president of Proud Ridge. <laughs> 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 and I was like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> yeah, Rob,
1: Rob's a friend and he's, he's, uh, he's, in a, he's one of, he's on our board of advisors, but uh, it's, you should,
0: you should. Well, I, I, I thought it was very, I thought it was very funny. Um, and uh, I figured you'd get a laugh out of that one. So, uh, uh, okay, two, two, two more questions. Um, uh, these are, these are softball ones. Uh, Pruitt Ridge, where did the name, where does the name come oh, from? Man,
1: that is a campsite in Big Sur. So we wanted a name that we could uh, get the dot com for. We wanted something that wasn't necessarily tied to space. And we didn't want to drop a vowel or add letters or add numbers to the name. So uh, we eventually converged on campsites we had been to, and we really liked the, the sound of it. it, reminded us of like, you know, there was this, this 90s era optimism uh, in technology we wanted to kind of, kind of bring with us. And so we wanted to kind of adopt that uh, into,
0: the, into the ethos. So, Well, I think you might have just uh, led me to my, my, my last question, which is, what do you do in your free time?
1: yeah well I, I as i mentioned earlier
0: i uh, uh you, you we talk about
1: systems engineering you talk about systems thinking like what is the most effective way to solve a problem and what is like where where should you focus your effort on that um i think for me personally again that goes back to this this oh man, this like mobility experiment because hmm. you know if you think about if you think about climate change think about um you know housing inequality inside of the valley in particular, like these are all problems of geometry. Um, there are problems of of you know how are we where are we investing our resources, right? And you know I, I joke that I'm a single issue voter for bike lanes just because it's it seems to be like, where can I focus my efforts on on something in in that part of the world and then see what the ripple effects end up being. And you know I, I think if we're able to get around outside a little easier um, you know, you know, if you're able to take those 50% of autom- of of car trips, which are under, they're all under three miles or so, if you were to move those and spread them out through a diversity of vehicle types, I think you'll see happier and healthier populations, to be honest, like I think you'll just have a better time yeah. going out into the
0: world. So um, I've been engaging in some of the bikes up uh, aggressively over the last couple of months. Um, all right, so we all we all know we all know what you're going to be doing after uh, after Pered. It sounds like you're going to some, there's some urban planning or some type of startup idea there, helping kind of rebuild urban infrastructure. Yeah, a rethink. It's urban infrastructure. it's all it's all it's all related. I mean, it's
1: it's the operating system in which our you know, we all live. Same as like we want to be the operating
0: system in which engineers live. So it's uh Yes, exactly. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. This is great. Uh, this is a, this is not this is not a uh, easy topic, I'd say, for for the non-engineer. But I think you did a great job uh, uh, boiling it down to its core core pieces. So, yeah. Um, thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. It's just fun yeah, thing.
1: appreciate it, Mel. This is a great question. It's really appreciate talking to you.